coming to your presence, God, and we just ask that your spirit will continue to do a work that you are already doing as we praise your name and worship you, God. And Lord, in your presence, let us feel safe, God, to come as we are, to be vulnerable before you, to be honest before you, to not shield things from you, to not have the attitude of trying to make up for our faithlessness or uh, just some things that we feel bad about this week, but rather, God, that we would simply marvel in your grace as we come to your word, that we will see that you are a God of mercy. You are a God of grace and nothing can out, out exhaust your mercy. Nothing, none of our, not our, our sin of the past, of the present, and even of the future could outdo just the vastness of your mercy toward us. And so let us experience that today and be at rest in your presence knowing that you do love us with an everlasting love. We ask that you help us understand your word today and that you would speak to us personally. In Jesus' name we pray. As a church we say, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we are back in our detailed study of the book of Samuel. We are in chapter 25 today. Uh, last week, if you joined us, you would see that we had a, uh, a break from the series when Pastor um, Bruce Hills, his name, um, and he was sharing about uh, how we are called to be the church and that we have a, a mission to accomplish here on earth. Um, so you could... Uh, if you did, if you didn't attend last week, if you missed that, you could go back to our recording online on YouTube. I just want to say hi to those of you tuning in online. Um, but today we're heading back into the Book of Samuel, and so it's a long chapter. And so what I'm going to do is just read parts of it and just summarize the story as we go, um, so that we don't read the whole. We don't have to read the whole chapter here today, but. We pick up from this chapter in verse 1, and we find out that Samuel has now passed away. Um, so one of the key figures uh, in the book of Samuel, this guy, has, um, is now uh, dead. And David and his men are still uh, in the wilderness. They have been hiding in the wilderness, uh, escaping Saul, because Saul wants to kill them. Um, and so he is now in the wilderness of Paran. And um, on the run, they are running low on surprise. Now we, uh, supplies. Now we have to understand that David uh, is with about 600 other men. Okay? So being a fugitive with a huge army would have been an epic uh, task. And no wonder he was living in a lot of anxiety and fear uh, in that season. Um, but so is the situation that they are in. They have been protecting the flocks, 
during their time in the wilderness, they've been protecting the flocks of this very wealthy man named Nabal, who lived nearby. Um, and now when the story picks up, we see that it is sheep shearing time. Now, right now we have no idea what that means. But in the context of those days, sheep shearing time is actually a time of feasting, a celebration. If you were a sheep farmer, this would be a time of harvest for you. So um, knowing that it is sheep shearing time and knowing that they have been protecting the flocks uh, um, for Nabal, David sends messengers to Nabal um, making a humble request for some supplies and for his favor. And so let's pick up the story in verse 4. Um, and we just read a couple of verses. Um, it says, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask you young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Here we see that David identifies himself as a son and as a servant of Nabal. Now, he does that as a sign of respect. So that would just be their lingo uh, in those days to show respect to Nabal. But this is what happens. Instead of showing generosity and hospitality to David in, in recognition for what David did um, in service to Nabal and what he did to protect the flocks and to protect the shepherds, Nabal responds with David's requests with insults. The worst possible insults, too, you could ever give. Um, in verses 10 to 11, um, we see Nabal's response. He says, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. And why should I take my bread and my water and the meat that I slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? And so, in other words, if you were to translate it to today's language, who does this guy think he is? Um, now, it, it was actually uh, impossible for Nabal not to know who David was because obviously being part of that kingdom, he would know this big drama that's been happening, that Saul was pursuing, uh, that, that there was this big conflict happening between Saul and David and, and that Saul was pursuing David and David was in hiding. So it really, um, it, so Nabal actually knew who David was. He was just mocking him. Uh, so if you were to rephrase what he said, it, was, it would be something like, you're an unworthy outlaw, a rebel against a king. I'm not going to give my bread to, to you guys from who knows where. And so here we see that Nabal repaid David's good deed by, uh, with evil, by humiliating him and refusing to share his provisions. The word Nabal in the Bible in, um, in, is actually the word of fool, okay? So in ancient Israel, uh, they would often name, um, you know, a, a person's name would be connected to their character. Now, I, I doubt that the mom 
gives birth and then as the baby cries, she looks at him, you fool, um, and names him that way. So I doubt that's kind of what happened. Uh, we're not quite sure if he was he earned his name along the way um, or, or if that was a nickname uh, to him, but he certainly lived up okay, to his name. He was certainly acting like a fool in this situation. Uh, and we learn that he is this rich man, wealthy with all his possessions, but very poor in character. Now, when David hears this insult, all right, he reacts impulsively. Uh, and in his anger, he and his men set out to avenge the insult. In verse 13, David says, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supply. So he took two-thirds of his army to avenge this insult, okay? Here, we see David is tested yet again. If you were to really look uh, in a sort of bird's eye view, chapters 23 to 26 is really a time of David being in a wilderness, but it's a time of testing for David. And what we will see over these chapters is that he faced three tests. The first test we'd already gone through in chapter 24, where he was in the cave of En Gedi, and he was very close. He had the opportunity to kill Saul, right? Um, and that was his test, whether or not he would take matters of justice into his own hands, whether or not he would trust the Lord to do the work of placing him on the throne and ending his suffering, or whether or not he would do it himself. All right, that was his test. And we see that David passed that test. Now, here again, we see the second test. David, in this situation, was to leave justice again, in God's hand and act in obedience to God rather than to avenge himself. Because, you know, our hurt feelings just will never justify disobedience. In the Bible, what we will see is that the wilderness is often associated with a time of testing. So I've called today's sermons our, our hope in the wilderness. A very, uh, if those of you grew up in the church and are familiar with the Exodus story, you would know that Israel went through a time of testing in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, it says, The Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, in, in the wilderness, in the desert, God had led them there. God led them out of slavery into the wilderness before they stepped into the promised land. So God brought his people purposefully into a place without water, into a waterless place. Because he wanted the Israelites to know that what they needed more than physical water, uh, physical bread and, and physical food and water is that they would need God's living presence more. In the wilderness, God showed them that he is the source of life. And he showed them by firstly providing them with 
manna. Manna is something, as we see in the scriptures, something they were never exposed to because it was food that rained down from heaven. And it was the kind of food that on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, on most of the day of the week, it would expire after 24 hours. But on the day before the Sabbath, it would expire after 48 hours. That was God's daily provision. It was food raining from heaven. He wanted them to look up every day to see that he is the source of life. He taught them that idol worship and evil will eventually lead to death. But obedience to his word leads to life and peace. You see, true abundant life comes from the words of the living God that according to the psalmist in Psalm 19 verse 10 is more precious than gold, is sweeter than honey. And I know this psalmist would be referring to Canaan, which is the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And yet they say that the word of God is sweeter than that prosperity and honey. You see, before the Israelites were to enter the promised land and to receive all that God had promised for them, they needed to learn to live by God's word so that they will be ready to enjoy God's gifts. They would be ready to enjoy the prosperity and not enslave themselves to them, not idolize this prosperity, not put their hope in this prosperity. They would be enjoying the gifts of God, not abusing them. They would be enjoying the gifts of God and not forgetting God in that season. God did not want them to forget him while they were enjoying the land flowing with milk and honey. You know, in my personal seasons of being in in the wilderness, uh, I remember one particular, I mean, there are many, (laughs) um, Well, one particular season that really, I believe, shaped me was at the beginning of my marriage. And, um, you know, uh, Edwin and I had been together for about eight years before we got married. And we had, I would say we had, we had fights here and there, but we had a really fun relationship because we have a lot in common. Like, we like to watch concerts together. We like to, you know... Um, go to the same kind of restaurants. We like the same cuisine. So we just had a lot of, you know, we had a lot of fun. We didn't have any responsibilities. Um, And so we entered marriage thinking, oh, yeah, we could just have, you know, it will only lead to more fun, you know, despite obviously being warned and having marriage counseling and everything. But, you know, we were just having a good time. But as soon as I feel like as soon as we made those vows, it was as if the Lord had led us into the wilderness. (laughs) Um, The circumstances just, they were just rough. From about uh, halfway into our marriage, um, I quit my job. Uh, I had loved it, but I quit for a very uh, specific reason. And so I knew that After our time at the honeymoon, you know, um, I was going to find another job, get our life back together, and it was going to be fine. That was my plan, okay? Um, The thing is, we had a mortgage at the time, and Edwin had a dream to begin a business, to start his business. And I, being a supportive wife, I was there in it for him, you know? I was like, let's do it. 
that year, though, we came back from our honeymoon. We had, and we, we discussed this, and Edwin invited me to start this business with him, to sort of pursue this dream for a whole year. Now, we were still kind of carrying that let's do it attitude, okay? I would say looking back, was that a wise decision? I would not recommend this, okay? Earlier, this is a huge stressful situation where you don't have an income, you are pursuing a very, and it was a, a, a business idea that was very niche. It had to do with music and, and the indie musicians that we, we were taking care of were, you know, we were trying to fight for them, but it was just a system that, you know, required a lot of innovation. And we started this, we, okay, so, so I just said, let's do it, you know. But for a year, we had a mortgage and no income. And expenses were just going out. And if you want to be tested in your marriage and your marriage vows, that's a good way to be tested. All right? For better or worse, for richer or poorer. To de- <laughs> and um, it was as if the Lord had just led us there. Uh, and in that season, it, I remember even those who walked with us would remember it was a hard season for us. It was a hard year for us. But now looking back, I truly see God's grace. Why? Because in that season, I was desperate more than ever for God to do something, to work in our marriage. And I was about to learn that if I wanted a healthy marriage, a marriage that would go for the long haul, a marriage that would honor God, he truly needed to be at the center of it all. In my desperation, I was pursuing God like nothing. I had nothing else to do, honestly. There was not much to do on my part in this business that we were, you know. And so that year was a time of being in the wilderness. But it was the time that I, ha- I would learn that Jesus would, be need- would need to be at the center of my marriage, for my marriage to thrive. And what a val- valuable lesson it was. You see, we typically experience the preciousness of God more in seasons of hardship than in seasons of prosperity. And the most valuable lesson we can learn in the wilderness is to discover that all we need is in Jesus. Seasons of being in the wilderness also expose what's in our hearts. In God's kindness, he puts our idols in plain view, and so that we might see them. You see, in that season, suddenly I was seeing, oh, these are the expectations that I had about what marriage would bring me, about what Edwin would do. These were the expectations that I had about how our life should be. And God was exposing all of that. He was destroying these, these, these ideals that I had built so that I would trust the Lord to build my marriage. A quote by Dr. Tony Evans uh, from a sermon that he preached goes like this, God's classroom for teaching the Israelites humble dependence on him and obedience to him was in the wilderness when he tested them to find out if they would keep his commands God is testing us in the wilderness to see where our heart is. Will we obey him when we are tested? 
You see, all believers must go through a wilderness of testing before God will let us reach our destinies. If we look back at the story of David, we see that this was not a high moment for him. You know, David was going to do something uh, horrible that he would, he would regret because he became angry. David did not show the same mercy that he showed to Saul we, that we just read a chapter ago as um, when he spared Saul's life. And Saul was actually trying to kill him. His life was in actual danger. But it seems that it was harder for David to show the same mercy to someone he perceived as his equal or somebody he saw as even beneath him in some way. Or another. You see, in the wilderness, our character is formed. It is tested. When our heart is exposed, we see what's really on the inside. And here we see David's character that God was shaping. You see, our character is not tested by how we just treat our superiors. You know, especially us being in the Asian culture. We're used to honoring. We're used to smiling. And even though we don't mean it, we're used to like, you know, we know how to, um, how to fake, you know, uh, our, our like polite interactions. Um, and, you know, being a pastor's kid, I see it all the time. Like, you don't have to like pretend like it's not true. <laughs> We know what it's like, and I, I'm, I've mastered it myself. <laughs> um, so we know what it's like, all right, to, to be a certain way. Um, but you see, in the time of testing, our integrity is shown by how we treat those who are we think are either beneath us or equal to us, and especially how we treat them when it is in uh, in private that's when our integrity really shows that's when our character shows when nobody is watching how you treat a person is a sign of your character and so david was about to fail god's leadership test although his reaction was expected by um you know naval servants like in verse 17 they said he's going to kill us like that's like the rightful response, you know? And so it, it, it was because of the, the gravity of these insults, it was expected that David would react this way. But God actually called David to go further. He wanted David, uh, he was holding David to a higher standard of leadership than what the world expected. Now, you've got to understand, this is David's situation, Okay. He was waiting on the Lord to end his suffering as a fugitive. He was waiting on God to end his conflict with Saul um, and place him on the throne. And you know, in that time of waiting, it can, it's so tempting to, to do things our own way, right? To take shortcuts. It is so tempting to escape. And his temptation was to seize the throne through bloodshed, to end his suffering, to take justice into his own hands. Because the truth is, he could. He had an army of 600 people. He could. Ultimately, though, we see that he did pass these tests, but not without help. 
And this story of David being tested in the wilderness, it points forward to actually the story about Jesus, who was also led into the wilderness. You see, Jesus was baptized, filled with the Spirit, and the first thing that the Spirit led him to do was to enter into the wilderness. And for what? To be tempted and tested for 40 days. Sorry, um, after 40 days of being in the desert. Jesus was to be tempted by the devil so that he might resist and defeat the enemy with the word of God. Jesus' kingdom was to be established through bloodshed, but the blood that would be shed would be his own. You see, if God's kingdom was to be established by the bloodshed of rebels, those who rebelled against him, then God would just be like any other king. Yep, any other human king would do that. And that would be bad news for us. Why? Because at any point, at one point in our lives, we have all rebelled against God. But you see, the way Jesus would establish his kingdom is that he would die in the place of rebels. He would die in the place of them. And so that's good news to us, all of us. And that's what makes God, that's what makes Jesus a good king. It's also important to understand that Jesus didn't come on this earth and then he was enthroned. No, there was a whole lifetime of suffering that Jesus had to experience. This is also what makes him a good king. He suffered He suffered. He entered the human experience. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says, God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus through his suffering, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. You see, in order for Jesus to be equipped, well-equipped to be your savior, well-equipped to be your king, he needed to be one of us first. He needed to experience the problems and the pain that we experience so that he could sympathize with us in our problems and in our pain. So we see a God who is not removed from our pain, from our challenges. We see a God who went in and experienced it all so he could sympathize with us. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now, we look at that scripture and we're like, oh, his standard is we don't know. He, he didn't sin, so he doesn't want us to sin. Like, we place that at a standard. But this is supposed to be good news to us. Why? It says that Jesus was tempted in every way. And being sinless, we think, oh, well, well, that's superhuman. Like, for example, how many of you have ever thought, if you're going through a bad thing, and maybe some, like a life group leader said to you, yeah, you know, Jesus went through something like that. Have you ever, did it ever cross your mind that, oh, but he's Jesus. Like, he's this superhuman, he's God, right? But you've got to understand, he was also fully human, Like he woke up with bed hair. 
Like he needed to brush his hair however long. I'm pretty sure it wasn't as long as these pictures depict it to be. Like he would have gone through puberty and had pimples potentially at one point. Like he would have done the whole human experience. Like he was a baby crying for his nappy to be changed. Jesus became one of us. He came as a normal person to be with normal people. And so he knows what it is to be hungry, to be thirsty. He knows what it means to be rejected, to be embarrassed, to be laughed at, to be mocked, to be despised by others. He knows what it means to be misunderstood, to be falsely accused, to be judged. He knows what it means to experience loneliness and betrayal. His friends abandoned him when they needed him the most. Jesus had real problems and experienced real heartache. And he still remembers that heartache even today. Because he is still as human today. Enthroned as he was 2,000 years ago. So he remembers what that was like. And when he walks with you through your pain, if you would allow him to, he could sympathize with it. So that you couldn't say, nobody gets me. He's, he gets you. He knows what it's like for you. And so verse 16 says, we can then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. This, mean you, this means you and I can approach a God who knows, who understands, and who can help. You know, to our believers here who have experienced hard times, whatever hardship you've experienced, can I say this in love? There is no excuse. There is no excuse to the disobedience that you may be you know, walking in because you think, well, this was done to me, so whatever. There's no excuse. Why? Because we have a Savior who wants to help us through it and who knows what it is like. There is no excuse to that disobedience. The temptation to sin can be great when we're in the wilderness, right? Right? We want to escape. We can run to things to find pleasure in things. Uh, uh, For some of us, that could be sexual sin. For some of us, that could run to certain addictions in our lives to escape. Because we get frustrated. You know, we're emotionally overwhelming when we're waiting in seasons in the wilderness. The temptation to sin can be great. But in that moment, we need to remember that we have a Savior who was in the wilderness and yet never sinned. So what does that mean? That means that when he walks with you, he's not going to hang with you while you sin. Because he's not going to fall into sin with you. But instead, he can pull you out of it. Because he is the only one who has faced sin and temptation and never gave in. You see, if you walk with a friend especially if they're not very strong in their faith, the, the, the temptation, like, it may happen that you might drag your, your friend into whatever sin you're doing. It may happen, but I'm sure that the Lord will, will provide friends who will be there for you. But you see, with Jesus, 
He never fell into sin. So he's the only one that can pull you out of it. He's the one that will see you and he'll pull you out of that hole. Jesus faced every temptation and yet never gave in. And he is calling you to trust him. So when a longtime friend lets you down, when a family member betrays you, when a relationship goes sour, when you feel deeply misunderstood, when, when it feels like life is just passing by you, when you are laughed at by those who are proud, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like. And he's willing to go in it and through it with you. The pain that you feel can feel isolating, like it's only you that experiences it. But that's not true. It's not true. It's not unique. It's personal, yes. But the Lord has endured this pain. And he's willing to endure it with you and take you out of it. Are there areas of your life where you feel in the wilderness? And about which you need to speak to Jesus about right now. You know, some of us, that wilderness could be waiting on a, 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 a partner. You know, we've been praying for a partner and we're just waiting on the Lord. Uh, some of us, that could be waiting on the Lord for a job. It's been months and months and months with a job, without a job. And we're just praying, on the, praying and waiting for him to give us the job that we have been asking for. For some of us, it's financial breakthrough, just in general. For, for some of us, it's a relational breakthrough in our marriage or in our family life. For some of us, it could be praying for healing. Maybe we are on a journey of experiencing mental health issues. And we are asking the Lord to heal us in that season. If you belong to Jesus, God has not brought you into the season of wilderness to starve you. He's brought you there to teach you that man does not live by bread alone. He's there, he's there to teach you that your life, your hope, your joy, it's not going to be found when you have plenty. When you have the prosperity, when you're living in the land flowing with milk and honey, you're still going to feel empty. But it's found in him who is the source of life who is the living bread you see god was preparing david for kingship in the wilderness and um if you've um been in any leadership training course or taught it yourself you'd see that this is a completely different training course but this is the kind of leadership that god is preparing david for character character is so overlooked in our day and age where people just look on the outside, but God looks at the heart. He looks at your character. He looks at your heart for him. And it's in the wilderness that David then eventually learns to say in Psalm 63, verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now we go back to the story and we, we find David in his anger. He's about to kill off all the men in Nabal's household. Now fortunately, Nabal's wife, Abigail, hears what happens and immediately intervenes. 
Now, in the story, we see Abigail is described as a sensible and beautiful woman. And she rushes after David with a lavish gift of food and wine, the gift that her husband should have given him. And she reaches David just in time. I was reading a commentary about this as I was preparing. And the commenter would say, isn't it interesting how many Abigails you find married to Nabal's? Now, in those days, you know, there were things like arranged marriages happening. And so I don't know what happened, but let me just say, like, when we pray for a life partner, the temptation is to settle for anything, anyone. Don't settle. Pray for a godly man. (laughs) Women, pray for a godly man. And he doesn't have to be perfect or just someone who seeks the Lord. When Abigail meets David, she bows to the ground and begs him to listen. In verse 25, she says, Pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool. And folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. In other words, don't listen to him. He's an idiot. And then she gives him this amazing speech where she reminds um, David of who he is in the Lord. Abigail takes the blame in this speech that we will see. He takes, she takes the blame for her husband's actions. But then she encourages David to look to God for vengeance instead. She points out that until this point, David has resisted the temptation to take vengeance into his own hands. Remember, you didn't kill Saul. Like, remember, you've resisted taking matters into your hands. And then she affirms that God will give David a lasting dynasty and that God will protect him as soon as, as long as she lives. Remember God, who, who you are in the Lord, that God's the one who protects you, that God's the one who fights for you. And then she asks him, she appeals to him, don't do something that you're going to regret later as a king. You see, that's wisdom. That somebody would remind you, don't do something you're going to regret later. Because what legacy are you going to be leaving by your actions today? This decision, where will it lead you later on down the track? She puts it this way. She says, God holds the bundle of the living like a bundle of sticks. And David is tied tightly into that bundle. Remember, you are under God's protection. Let him avenge you. Watch what such wisdom from Abigail. Her appeal and her intervention, it saved everyone's life. And it kept David from sinning that day. And we see that David praises God for her. He blesses the Lord who sent her to him and restrained him from killing Nabal. He said in verse 32, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and 
for, and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive at daybreak. Who have you got in your life that you have given permission to speak wisdom? Who do you look to for wise counsel? You know, the biggest, what, what made Adam and Eve fall into sin was they wanted to judge for themselves what was right and wrong, what was wise. You see, that's rebellion. That is at the core of it, what rebellion against God looks like. Thinking you know what's right and what's wrong. Not the creator of the universe, but you, little old you. When there's billions of other people very similar to you. Unique, of course. That you would know the answers to what's right and what's wrong. That is rebellion at its core. And often we don't like to get told when we're wrong. And so we avoid counsel. But if we want to live in wisdom, we need to have people in our lives that will speak wise counsel over us. Who do you have in your life? And you have to give permission, by the way. You've got to give permission to that person and express to this person, I want you to speak over my life. There are people in my life, aside from my spouse, mentors, aside from my, 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 my very wise parents, that I've, been, I've given permission to speak over my life and give me wise counsel. And mind you, they have spoken sense over me many a times. Again, seasons of waiting can be hard emotionally. And the temptation to sin can be great. Who do you have that will say, let me help you. Let me encourage you. Don't do it. Don't fall into sin. I'll be there. I'll walk with you. David, what was his reaction to Abigail's intervention? He was grateful for it. You see, David was a man who made many mistakes. He had many flaws. But one thing he did right was he would listen to wise counsel. He listened to it in this, in this instance. And we will see with the mistakes that he makes later, later, he listened to it then. And by wise, I mean godly counsel. You see, God wrote this universe. Like he put it together in his creation. And so only he holds the wisdom for how things are to thrive in this universe, including you. And I think some of us, we've, we've reject the wisdom of God. We reject it. We don't care what his word says. And we find ourselves empty, just feeling futile and, and life is meaningless. And we wonder why. Because we have rejected the source of wisdom. David was in God's leadership training course. What kind of leader would he have become if he didn't listen to wise counsel? And I say, girls, guys, single ladies, single men, if you're in a relationship, a good sign that you have a husband or a wife later on 
who will be able to grow a lot in the Lord. Obviously, miracles can happen, intervention, the Lord can save, but a good sign is are they teachable? Are they teachable? Not teachable just by you, obviously. (laughs) But do they look to others for wise counsel? Are they willing to grow? Because this journey of marriage, if you, you, it's your choice. But remember that people don't change unless God changes them. Now, of course, you can wait on the Lord to change. But just have a think about it. Have a think about it. Do you have such people in your life, friends, peers, who have permission to speak truth in love? Who don't laugh at you or just ignore it, but they're going to listen when you, they speak truth. In Proverbs 12, verse 1, it says, To learn, you must love discipline. It is stupid to hate correction. I get it. We get insecure. But ultimately, we've got to deal with that because it is ultimately foolish to hate correction. Because to think that we have made it at any point, that we know it all, that we've reached the pinnacle of our lives, we've just said no to further growth. We've just said no to more breakthroughs. We've just said no to heading into further things that God has planned for us. You see how pride hinders us from experiencing the grace of God. Let's stand in the Lord's presence. Ultimately, Abigail was there intervening. You know what she did, though? She risked her life. She faced 400 angry men, took the blame of her husband. And in her wisdom and courage, she brought salvation to that household. When you're going through a wilderness season, you've got to remember that someone has already done that on your behalf. When you're bogged down by your own, you know, corner that you find yourself in and you just don't know how to get out of it Jesus has inter- has interceded for you at one point in your life and he is interceding for you today he is appealing for your life right now let those with ears to hear listen to the word of God he is appealing because The Bible shows us that Jesus is not just, he just didn't go on the cross and accomplish all that for us. It is a finished work, but even until today, he intercedes for you so that you can continue to live the life that he has planned, the life of prosperity that he wants to lead you into. He's doing that right now. He's appealing for your life. He says, let me help you in that season. Come, says the Lord. Let those with ears to hear 
listen. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We just ask, Lord, that you forgive us, God. Some of us have just been foolish. But Lord, your grace is more than enough. We can never outrun your grace. You've sent people to pursue us, to speak truth over our lives. You've sent people to remind us of how much you love us. You've sent people to show us your grace. And Lord, today, I ask that for those of us who are willing to take that decision, just like David did, and to listen, to listen to the wise counsel and to turn away from evil and to repent, I ask that you would give us the grace to do it, God. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name.